0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 15th of April, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangul and Wajak people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, another resignation in the Liberal Party and are there more to follow? And the cost blowout in the Inland Rail Project is yet another example of why Barnaby Joyce should leave politics. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis,
2: currently writing a hip-hop musical on the life of Alfred Deacon.
1: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, It's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. After a short and sustained period of criticism about his role in the Liberal Party's leadership no vote for the voice to parliament, Julian Lisa has resigned from the shadow cabinet and has now said that he would campaign for the yes case. This will place more pressure on the leadership of Peter Dutton and probably add to the debate about the future of the Liberal Party. Now it's still not clear what Julian Lisa is going to do now. He said that he resigned from shadow cabinet so he could campaign for the yes case and he's also said that he wants to make amendments to what has already been proposed and he didn't end up repudiating any of Peter Dutton's claims that the voice of parliament will end up costing billions of dollars to implement and that it will grind the government to a halt and all of this of course is complete rubbish. So I think it will take a little bit of time to work out what these actions by Julie and Lisa actually mean.
2: The first thing I'm going to say is that I always think it is wrong to criticise those who go and to criticise those who stay. Now, I disagree with everything Lisa has done. In the same way, I disagree with a lot of things Bridget Archer has done, a lot of things Ken Wyatt has done and says and thinks. But I don't think it helps anybody to say, well, Lisa has left the shadow cabinet. Why does Birmingham stay? Why does Archer stay in the party, etc? One, we don't really know the internal drives that took us to that. And we can only really go on what Julian Lisa has said. And I'm going to take what he says at face value. I don't think he's lying about it. I think that he believes in the voice. I think that it's more complex than that he thinks it's absolutely the right thing to do. I think that he's looking at his electorate and how they're going to vote and that he wants to be sure that he's not out of step with them, partly because that's what a good representative tries to do, also partly because that's how you lose your seat. So there's there's all of that. There may be a dislike of Peter Dutton in there. We don't know, and I'm not going to comment. Certainly both men have spoke very highly of each other. I thought they were announcing that they were getting married at one point. And again, that's maybe... The cynic in us might see that that's a little bit more playing nice for the public view. Mum and dad not fighting in front of the kids, as it were, rather than any genuine affection they have. But again, you'd expect that from any party.
1: But I think if we have a look at what Julian Lisa has done on the face of it, as you pointed out, this is the correct course of action and no one can remain in cabinet or shadow cabinet if they're mm. publicly going against the views put forward by the leader it's it's barely tolerated if you're only on the back bench. and if you're in the labor party well you get thrown out of caucus and out of the party as well but i think a lot of people have been asking well do we have to delve a little bit further into what's actually going on here? Because since he left the Shadow Cabinet, Julian Lisa hasn't exactly gone on to support the yes case. He hasn't backtracked on any of those ludicrous claims that he made in the final few weeks that he was in the Shadow Cabinet, that Indigenous people would be able to influence interest rates and defence policy. He hasn't backed down from any of the ludicrous claims made by Peter Dutton about the voice of Parliament, and there has been some speculation that he resigned from Shadow Shadow Cabinet to save his own seat of Barara. And that's one thing that we do have to explore. But Barara is not really a moderate Liberal area. It's northern Sydney in the Hills District and surrounding areas. It's held by a margin of around 10%. But in this day and age, there's no such thing as a safe Liberal seat. It would never fall to the Labor Party, but if there's a solid teal or community independent candidate, that seat might be right for picking. We also have to look at the actions of Paul Fletcher. He's in the nearby seat of Bradfield, and he's also been doing a bit of yes-knowing and fence-sitting on the voice of parliament. And in the last election, he almost lost his seat to the community independent, Nicolette Buller, and he holds that seat by around 4%. So, Maybe we're all being just a little bit too cynical about this, but the question would be, did Julian Lisa resign from shadow cabinet because he genuinely believes in the voice of parliament? And like we only have to look at what he's been saying, or did he resign because he's worried about losing his seat? And I'd say that there's probably a lot of Liberal Party MPs from the city areas, not that there's too many of them left, but they'd be worried about this issue as well. If there's a hard no campaign pushed by Peter Dutton on the voice of parliament, and On all the evidence so far, and if he is still the leader at the time of the referendum, that's likely to be the case. And those MPs would probably be looking at losing their own seats at the next election, following on from what happened in many blue ribbon Liberal seats in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. So... As you mentioned before, David, we're not quite sure what's going on in the background, but these would be considerations that a lot of these Liberal Party Mm. MPs would be thinking about.
2: Definitely. The party is in disarray, and it's not because of the voice, let's be fair. It was in disarray well before then. The strategy that they're going for, the oppose everything, succeeded to a tiny extent with Abbott. It got them government. They then didn't know what to do when they were in government. And those of us who said that this was a bad tactic and that would lead to disaster if they were to get in, and that they were completely unfit to get in, were ignored, and then continued to be ignored. <laughs> but it was proven to be correct. But it was proven to be correct. Peter Dutton, in trying to oppose everything, has now painted himself into this tiny corner where I think the majority of Australia sees him as a racist or not a racist, but, which is a position no politician wants to be in. It's a position that. Tony Abbott found himself in. It's a position John Howard found himself in. It's a position Scott Morrison found himself in, either as racists or not racists. So it ended badly. It was one of the factors that made sure all of them ended badly on. Dutton won't be able to shake this. He's got too long a reputation. They're down to where he's holding babies and puppies and trying to smile. And it really looks like he's trying to say, must not eat must not eat and you know we know he's not a
1: monster his wife told us so, but this isn't helping no well there's a whole lot of issues going on there but Peter Dutton did say that his role as the leader was to unite the Liberal Party after their crushing loss of the 2022 federal election but so far he's done anything but that Julian Lisa has just resigned from the shadow cabinet Bridget Archer said that she'll be campaigning for the yes vote Ken Wyatt has resigned from the Liberal Party, And of course, he's no longer an MP, but it's not a good look if you've got a former Liberal Party minister and a recent former Liberal Party minister resigning from the party on the basis of policy. Andrew Gee also resigned from the National Party over the coalition stance on the voice of parliament. And that's not an issue for Peter Dutton. He's in a different party, but it's still an issue. Mm. Senator Simon Birmingham, he's in shadow cabinet, but he's saying that he won't actively support the no campaign. Maybe he should be resigning as well. But it's pretty obvious what the Liberal Party is trying to do with all of this. Their opposition to the voice to Parliament is intellectually weak. And it seems to be just another example of saying no to absolutely everything proposed by the Labor government. Here's Senator Jacinta Price being asked about the details of the Coalition's policy on this issue. You're saying that you do support regional and local voices but I, I just want some detail because obviously the criticism of the the current proposition being put to the australian public for this referendum is from your perspective that there's not enough detail what's the detail on mm-hmm. your proposal uh,
0: the detail is about empowering regional voices as opposed to um and, and certainly not about but, but isn't that uh, exactly do, what do, the do, referendum do, do, proposal do, do,
3: does to use do, do, to include regional and local from voices the
0: structures, Drawing from the structures that already exist, no, because it's it, it's about it's about there, it, there's a great focus on ensuring that people from the larger built-up areas are heard. Now, the problem, and my understanding, has always been that people in regional and remote Australia have have hardly had the opportunity to effectively be listened to, and maybe it's because of language barriers. So. We need to be smart about how we empower which voices and, and as I said, my focus uh, so has doesn't, always been doesn't the referendum about empowering do those that? voices.
1: Isn't that what the proposal no. is to do so that regional no, and local no. voices would be included in the makeup of the voice to parliament? That people are there for fixed terms, uh, the makeup of the voice has changed over time, that there is an obligation to include a, a mix of regional and local voices amongst that as well. Isn't that exactly what's being proposed?
0: No, no, no. no. And if you consider that within places like the Northern Territory, 30% of our population is Indigenous, is Indigenous. And as I said, if we really want to overcome the disadvantage, we've got to focus on where the disadvantage actually exists. It exists in those communities. And I don't believe, and the fundamental principle about all of this is the fact that I don't believe we we need this in our constitution to actually do
1: what it says. So that was a lot of waffle, not answering the question and deflecting. And what she is actually suggesting seems to be exactly what is being proposed through the voice to Parliament and it seems to me to be just another case of opposing something just because it's coming from her political opponents. So that's into Price and her plan of attack. Peter Dutton, is pretty obvious what his approach is going to be here. And this is what happens when a leader is so desperate to pin all of their leadership hopes On to the one event. So he's obviously trying to get political traction on the failure of the voice of Parliament, and that's why he's using every label in the book, calling it the Canberra Voice, Albanese's referendum, spreading lies about it, costing billions of dollars, bringing up that fiction that it's another part of government and the third chamber. And all of this is trying to boost his own leadership, but all of his efforts seem to be doing the opposite and splintering the party, and it's not a good sign... For a leader, if you've got backbenchers speaking out and shadow cabinet ministers resigning, and there's not too much sign of a united party there. The party's splitting
2: between its its hard right, you could almost call it dry faction. It, it, it's a bit different to the dries of the 80s and the 90s. It's deeply conservative wing, and it's much more moderate wing. Now... The Liberal Party is called the Liberal Party because it was a a liberal party in the English sense of the word. It was never designed, from Menzies' point of view, as a conservative party. It did attract some conservatives, particularly those who wanted a political career. And there were some conservatives who served with great distinction and great honour, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all being fair, but they were really outliers in the party. Now that this hardline conservative rump is running it, it's falling apart. I think I said it last week that, that urban, the, the suburban moderate liberal is finding it hard to find anywhere to go. The modern Liberal Party under Peter Dutton doesn't really represent the traditional liberal voter. And of course they had a good run under Scott Morrison who managed to burn the whole thing down while he pillaged the place. It's a decline that, or it's a split that has been a long time coming and we can go back to the Peacock-Howard conflicts of the 1980s to see who owned the soul of the party and the Howard faction wins that. I mean, we can stretch it back to Deacon and Reid, the protectionists versus the free traders, which was always going to be a tension in, in any party. But the arguments both got more complex and subtle and much more overt and unsubtle. Whether the party will survive this in its current form, I think, is highly unlikely. I think that there's going to be some kind of breakaway Again, I saw on social media people criticizing Bridget Archer for not leaving, people criticizing Simon Birmingham for not leaving the party, people criticizing Julian Lisa for not leaving and
1: Well the question is where do they go?
2: Yeah, one, where do they go? And two, is it possible and I, I again I don't know that they're trying to stay in to try and move the party back to their way of thinking. Nobody really said to John Howard, why don't you leave? Oh, they did, actually. Nobody really said to the the drives, why don't you leave, when the Wets were dominant under Peacock and, well, Downer. But they stayed in and they reformed the party and, and got it to a point where it suited them, which is terrible from our perspective. But it's what you do in a party. So do they have the will? Do they have the capability? Do they have the strength to do that? Only time will tell.
1: And a few people have asked us, well, why is this all happening now? Like, it's obvious that there are political solutions that the Liberal Party and Peter Dutton could implement, but why are they not doing that? And it's pretty obvious that if the voice of parliament is created and it doesn't have constitutional protection, that's whenever the Liberal Party returns to government, they'd probably get rid of it, and that's why it's probably so important mm. to have it in the constitution. And... Why is the Liberal Party under Peter Dutton behaving in this particular way when the voice of Parliament does have strong support within the community, for the time being at least, And. The short answer is that I think that they see a political opportunity in all of this, or Peter Dalton does at least, and there is a deeper answer to all of this as well, and I think a lot of this stems from the amalgamation of the National and the Liberal Party in Queensland, which occurred back in 2008. The National Party has been the dominant coalition partner in Queensland, so it meant that the Liberal Party MPs when they amalgamated with the National Party became more influenced by National Party politics and their agendas and even though they sit in separate party rooms it's like the LNP in Queensland is more like the National Party than the Liberal Party and it's the reason why MPs who would nominally be Liberal Party MPs in Queensland tend to be more conservative than their counterparts in other parts of Australia. So that's part of the reason but there's other political factors that don't make too much sense so federally the LNP holds 21 of the 30 federal seats in Queensland but in state politics they're out of government and they only hold 34 of the 93 seats there and in local governments the LNP holds only 27 of the 78 seats available there so federal seats in Queensland are dominated by the LNP but not anywhere else. So that's creating an interesting dynamic in itself but the other thing we have to take into account is that while all of this speculation of the LNP and the future of the Liberal Party leader is going on or what's going on in Queensland with the LNP backbenchers speaking up about the voice of parliament and people resigning from the party, this is absolutely what the federal Labor government would be after. All of this focus is on the Liberal Party and As Napoleon Bonaparte said, you never interrupt while your opponent is making all of the mistakes. And Mm. the Labor government is just going on with the business of government. And as they discovered when the Labor Party was in opposition for nine years, all the fun happens when you're in government, not when you're languishing in opposition.
2: Yeah, you don't get asked to the things you used to get asked to. It's harder to get media airtime. Not incredibly hard for the LNP or the Liberal and National Parties in Australia, but it is a bit harder. You get paid less. You get asked to a lot less things. You spend a lot more time doing your local surgeries than you do dealing with national events. And when you have that attitude that you are born to rule, this hurts uh, more so than if you believe in democracy. H I'm sure it hurts that if even if you are the most democratic person and you lose your seat which good people lose their seats on occasion it hurts they're going through a period of let's call it deserved punishment for what they did for robo debt for refugee treatment we don't need to go over it again and again and again
1: well maybe we do david
2: maybe we do but they're being punished by the electorate for this privatization one thing that is very clear people have seen privatisation doesn't work. And the privatizers said, particularly in the States, and it came out here that taxation is theft. Privatisation is theft, much more clearly. Taxation is part of the social contract. Privatisation is carving it up for your mates. There are exceptions to that because no doubt we'll have someone say, oh, this was privatised and it worked better. Okay, that's fine. But mostly it's basically theft. We've seen it in New South Wales, seen it in Victoria. I think they've seen it in Queensland. The Liberal Party is is in a period of punishment. It also needs to lick its wounds. It also needs to heal. It also needs to rebuild. And, of course, opposition is a very good place to do that because nobody really cares if the shadow opposition minister is taken down in a scandal three years before an election. During an election campaign or running up to an election, it's it's vitally important, of course. But the party's still finding the right people for the jobs. It's still looking at the best way of moving forward. It's still looking at policy, or it should be. And I think one of the issues with the Liberal Party is that it has no policy. The culture wars are a symptom or or a cause or an effect of not actually having substantial policy. You could look at leaders like John Hewson, leaders like Malcolm Turnbull to a lesser extent, But as we go back, didn't really enter into these things because they were too busy developing real policy. Now, Turnbull, of course, is a bit of a lightweight, but he tried. Those that had nothing got stuck into trans people, got stuck into gay people, got stuck into the disabled, got stuck into non-Anglo or people of colour in particular. And it doesn't work. Because what they promise materially, which was all the kingdoms of heaven showered down upon us from God above, we got something else showered on us and when we complained, we got more of it. So this is what they're going through at the moment. And Peter Dutton has really nowhere to go. He's decided that opposing everything is the only thing you can do as an opposition leader, whereas an opposition leader should be showing how they would build the country sure, we don't like this policy. This policy is good, but they haven't done it quite right and we do it this way. Here's the costings for a similar policy that, you know, you can be constructive and still oppose. And I don't think that they've quite understood that. I don't think the intellectual grasp is there or the strategic grasp is there or the tactical grasp is there or even the political grasp is there to see that a more sensible and less obstructive way of
1: opposition might actually work now. That the old way has gone. And apologies to our audience for continuously laying the boots into the, the Liberal Party, but just a little bit more torture going on here. But I still do think that all of this is a losing situation for Peter Dutton and following on from all of those losses that just keep coming in for the Liberal Party, the voice to Parliament is probably going to be another loss for him. There is talk about allowing the Liberal Party to have a conscience vote for the referendum, but I think that this will actually lose him more authority within the party and probably within the electorate as well. And And maybe for the people in the electorate who do support Peter Dutton and his position on the voice to parliament, well, they might be thinking, well, where's the courage of your convictions? All this time you've been saying that the voice to parliament is going to be terrible, cost billions of dollars, the third chamber of parliament, it will grind government to a halt, all of that sort of stuff. It's going to be really terrible. But now you're letting all of the Liberal Party MPs have a free vote in the referendum. Well, if that's the case, well, it can't be that bad, can it? But I think overall... To play politics, it doesn't matter how terrible your agenda is and how malevolent your political goals are, if you do want to succeed, you have to play the game of politics very well. And for me, Peter Dutton is a very bad political player. And if he was a contestant in Australian Survivor, he probably would have been voted off the island a long, long time ago. But I think that the style of politics that he is playing is not very sincere. It appears highly opportunistic. It's too hard and too narrow and there's no subtle approach to any of this. And there's no intellectual gravitas behind this as well. It's playing negative politics just for the sake of it. And I think this has been very, very well detected by many people in the electorate. And for me, another good example of this was an article written by the former LNP senator, Amanda Stoker, and she's also from Queensland, and that appeared in the Australian Financial Review where she talked about the need to defeat the voice of parliament as a political win for the Liberal Party and to sustain a body blow to Albanese's leadership. And that's what all of this is about. It's not about people. It's not about doing the right thing or achieving a positive outcome for the Indigenous community or for the Australian community. It's all about the political win and sustaining a body blow to... The Prime Minister and the Liberal Party just doesn't seem to understand what modern politics is meant to be about anymore. It's politics without a purpose and it's becoming less and less relevant as time goes by.
2: Nobody outside of perhaps himself has ever thought that Peter Dutton will be even leading the Liberal Party at the next election, let alone become Prime Minister. Now I'm less inclined to make direct blanket predictions like that because Tony Abbott is the warning and Scott Morrison is the warning against totally unfit people becoming prime minister. It can happen, particularly with a a soft media. And the other thing that's going on too is that, and this hasn't, the ripples of this haven't hit yet, but that's the, the Dominion court case in the United States suing News Corp. If Dominion wins, and the suggestion is, is that, the lawyers for News Corp have already started working on the appeal because they know they're going to lose after two days of testimony in a 16 or 20 day testimony. It's going to take money out of the Australian media landscape, which is bleeding money anyway, particularly News Corp papers. It's going to find that with a less intensely partisan press, people like Dutton are going to find it harder to get away with the stuff that they've traditionally got away with. There's a whole range of things that need to be investigated, allegedly, in a fair and open and transparent way. But it comes down to the fact that he is not seen as being electable by anyone. John Howard is the other model. The famous bulletin cover, why does this man even bother? And then eight years later, he was prime minister. Now, again, let's be fair. Dutton doesn't have eight years in him. The cycle moves a lot quicker now. John Howard was a much younger man than Peter Dutton is now. I think, what, Dutton's 55, 56? I think he's 53 this year. He doesn't really have eight years to bumble around trying to learn how to be an appropriate prime minister. I suspect he's got maybe till the end of this year. And if Those by-elections that are rumoured to be happening are happening and they don't gain, and especially if they lose. And if he becomes the first opposition leader to not support a referendum and it goes through, and this is a likely thing, he's gone and will not be back.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube soundcloud and amazon music or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support new politics through patreon
1: It was revealed during the week that the cost of the Inland Rail Project has doubled within two years and it's gone from $16 billion with a completion date of 2027 up to $31 billion and a completion date of 2031. And the Inland Rail Project commenced in 2018 and is proposed to operate between Brisbane and Melbourne. We do realise that Barnaby Joyce is no longer in government, but this was one of his pet projects when he was the Deputy Prime Minister and also the Minister for Infrastructure and Regional Development, and there were also those claims that he was trying to speed up this inland rail project and change the path of the project so it would run closer to the land that he owns near Narrabri, and that's around 1,000 hectares of land, which no one in their right mind would buy unless they knew of some kind of future government project that was going to be developed, and... Where there's corruption, or alleged corruption, Barnaby Joyce is never too far behind. Now, there's two possibilities here. Either the project was under-costed, so it would at least get underway, and then a future government would have to worry about the funding of it, or there's been some serious mismanagement of funding arrangements and contracts. But either way, it looks like there's been some unethical behaviour and possibly some corrupt behaviour going on. Same thing
2: has happened in New South Wales with the uh, rail from Parramatta to the city. It's blown out. The new New South Wales government has to manage its 30% increase. It went from $17 billion to $25 billion, something like that. And the Premier has basically said, we have to slow this down till we work out how to fix it which is not an unreasonable position to take, although very frustrating for those people whose houses have been knocked down and who had to move and whose jobs have relied upon getting this contract, etc. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes, and hopefully they can sort something out and keep at least the contractors working while they sort out how they're going to resolve this cost blowout. So the inland rail has been something that's been proposed since the 1890s, and then when the Northern Territory is formed ever since then and all over the place. Now, is rail still a viable option when they've moved everything to truck and most freights to truck and shut a lot of rail down in the country? That's one thing that we should ask. Should they have shut the rail down? That's a whole other question, but short answer, no, they shouldn't have. Secondly, Barnaby, if it gets up, and I doubt it will, it's going to be his only achievement. And it's a fractured, broken, limping achievement that just crosses the line. An achievement of government waste, government corruption, company greed, and how basically not to run a big project. But if it gets up, it would probably be about the only thing he could say that he genuinely achieved that had any lasting legacy. So I can see why it's important to him. But despite trying to come back, he never has five years ago, we said his career was dead. I wrote a political obituary for him. I still see no reason to change that. Yeah, he, he was the drought envoy. But what came out of that? Some text messages that we never saw, most likely because they never existed. He was leader of the party again. And it did nothing. It didn't gain anything. It lost a bit and his loutish behaviour cost him the job again, and he won't be back as leader, no matter how much he tries to push it.
1: Now, the Prime Minister did commission a review of what's happened within this project, and the report was prepared by Kerry Schott, and she's a senior executive who has got many years working in larger organisations within the business and government sectors, and $2.5 billion has already been spent on the inland rail project, but there's been a number of issues within this project, including a lot of environmental issues, the lack of proper negotiations with Indigenous groups in some of these areas, especially in New South Wales. It's also splitting up a number of large farming areas as well and there's also been the accusation that it's a rail system that's been built for big business and mining considerations rather than communities and then of course there's the cost of all of this and in politics and in government it's best if everyone has accountability for their actions even once they leave government and Barnaby Joyce has been asked about this massive cost blowout but he's come out to blame everyone else he's skeptical of the costs that have been suggested and Might have been a little bit too early in the day, but he did actually sound a little bit drunk. So you're blaming the
3: four different reviews that took place, particularly around the the, 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 uh, Mill Merrin stretch, delaying the project, affecting the cost uh, blowouts.
4: And any delay means you're going to have to pay more more for steel more for contracting, everything, the cost of everything goes up. The more you delay, the more it costs.
3: But by me, Joyce, this went from $16 billion, I thought it was 14000000000 billion, let's say $16 billion, according to the new minister, 5, 4, to $31.4 billion. That's astronomical.
4: But let's have a look at the numbers. Why don't they say a trillion dollars? If you can't actually provide the details of exactly how this is made up, then it's just a number.
3: Well, well, Dr Schott has in her uh, over 100-page report, as I understand it. Have you read that report by Dr Schott?
4: no i haven't
3: is there a, um, why not given it's
4: your project you're so proud well, of it? i'm happy, i'm happy, well I'm very proud of it because if we don't get it we're going to it takes about seven hundred and fifty thousand tons of carbon emissions uh, out if you wanted to do, have the green movement of 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 goods and this is the way to do it We've also got a business plan to. Uh, get bulk commodities into Gladstone as well. I think that's incredibly important.
3: Did you ignore the advice to get the right people involved from the start? Because Dr. Kerry Shot has been critical in her report of, well, on this point. She,
4: she would. K- Kerry Shot, in her role with uh, basically green energy, uh, and and I've sort of locked horns in the past. So I, I'm not surprised that Kerry Shot, who is the grand architect of you know you know the. Renewable power, which is costing us. But can
3: money. I get you to answer that, that? Her criticism was that you didn't get the right people involved from the start, and that's what's caused the delays and the cost a, blowouts. A board,
4: no, that's. I mean, that's so. That's a pathetic uh, that Kerry would say that. A board has overview, but the actual cost. They, they, you don't select the accountants, and you don't select the quantities of That is done in the in the corporate structure of the Inland Rail. And once more, if if there was a cost blowout, if they were looking at 31 billion dollars. We would have definitely known about it. So they've come up with this magic figure, basically as a mechanism to try and delay it further, kick it into the long grass, so you can continue with the trucks powering through the middle of Brisbane.
1: The 31 billion dollars—that's a lot of money, David. That's almost the price of two or three AUKUS nuclear submarines, but. These costings have come from the Australian Rail Track Corporation. They haven't been made up or magically come out of thin air. These were figures that were provided by the ARTC and they've also suggested that the reasons behind the cost blowout are the original project design and initial scoping details were inadequate and unsuitable people were appointed to senior positions within this project and Governments are meant to be on top of all of this, whether they come from the left or the right or the centre, they are meant to do these types of projects competently, and it's just another example of the corruption incompetence left behind by the previous coalition government, and every couple of months there's another issue that we hear about from the coalition's time in government. There were the secret ministries of Scott Morrison, there's million-dollar payments for reports that were never produced, and now these Cost blowouts are happening within the Inland Rail Project and it's like there's a never-ending list of totally bad behaviour by a corrupt former government. It's somewhat of a tradition that governments,
2: particularly Liberal governments, leave booby traps for the incoming Labor government. Sometimes it's a higher strategy of making sure that the Labor government spends all their time fixing stuff up and then they can present the Labor government and look at all the bad stuff they did. Sometimes it's just pure incompetence. I think this is a mix of the two. It's vexatious, obviously, f- for the government, and I'd say the same, by the way, if it was the other way around. It's painful, and it takes away from things that could be done that the government wants to do. Of course, a prime minister and a government only get so much that they get to do, the rest of it they have to fix because it's there. Harold Macmillan, one of the British Prime Ministers, said, what is it about being Prime Minister? And he says, events, dear boy, events. And you can be dragged into situations that you had no idea that you were going to be dragged into. And the whole vision for your government has gone out the window. And when these things have been bought by a government that didn't run things very well, let's be frank, and we have now things like this railway, that is going to be a financial disaster. It's not going to make its money back in any time soon. They won't be able to sell it off because no one will want it. And it'll be just another white elephant.
1: And we also have to take into consideration that these types of reviews and reports do have a political motivation. New governments always want to keep reminding Mm. the electorate about the reasons for why they voted out a previous government. And this is exactly what the Albanese government is doing here, as well as trying to get to the bottom of all of this but even within that political context a 15 billion dollar cost blowout within two years for a project that was meant to cost 16 billion dollars and and even that 16 billion dollars was seen to be a little bit too much that's award-winning scandalous behavior and that's not to say that this inland Rail project should never have been built. As you mentioned before, David, it's been on the agenda of different federal governments since Federation and even before then, but it's just a question of the merits of this inland rail project now so all of this is totally over the top and I'm just wondering if this review is also setting up the inland rail project so it can be shoehorned into the National Anti-Corruption Commission when it comes into existence in a few months time and the hearings of all of this are meant to be all secret but I can imagine that Barnaby Joyce will be one of the first people to appear at the Anti-Corruption Commission and of course we can't predict what will happen in the future as you mentioned before David we did predict that Barnaby Joyce was going to be gone five years ago but he's still here he's not in office but he's still in parliament he resigned as national party leader in disgrace in 2018 over sexual misconduct and travel expenses he should have been booted out then from public life but he's still here and on top of all this you have to think well what's the point of Barnaby Joyce being in politics he's got no political clout he spews his bile in the media and especially on the voice of parliament at the moment but I think that That style of retail politics, which the mainstream media loves to lap up, I think it's way past its use-by date. And I know that it's hard to give up a $210,000 salary when you haven't got too much to do and you're holding an ultra-safe seat in New England, but there isn't really any point in Barnaby Joyce being in politics anymore except to appear at the National Anti-Corruption Commission and do a little bit of explaining when he gets there. He's got
2: no other option, much like several of his colleagues and allies. No one wants to hire him. He runs, by the looks of things, a very expensive lifestyle, and he can't get a job outside, I suspect. I doubt anyone has approached him with job offers. I don't know if he's actively looking. That's none of my business anyway. Oh, well, I
1: guess you look at the $210,000 pay packet and you think, well, I'm not leaving that.
2: When you don't need to do anything, and if you shut your mouth just enough, you can be a rabble rouser and a stirrer without upsetting the leadership of the party too much. Little Proud hasn't had to publicly berate him for some time now, at least six or eight months. So that to me suggests that Barnaby knows that his political career has reached its zenith and that he can hopefully plateau it from now to retirement, which will be in te- another couple of elections. The job that I think he was hoping for with Gina Reinhardt it, it was vetoed by her children and no other mining or agricultural or quango or semi-government has as yet offered him work for whatever reason
1: that's it for this episode of new politics thanks for listening in if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au we don't beg plead beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end we just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.